Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. When we started the company in 2011 and even a few years after, like nobody really believed in wave energy because there were so many high-profile failures. Like first everybody everybody said like it's too expensive, you know? So then we built you know, the off-grid power station in Jaffa Port, and we just showed that it's actually not even close to the prices of the offshore attempts that have been made. Then they said, okay, it's not expensive, but it will break down, we will see. So we operated it for six years and it didn't break down. But then they said, yes, it's great, but uh, you know, what about the environmental impact? And then we showed, like, we made an environmental study that showed that because you're connected to a man-made structure, there's really no environmental impact. And then came the question, everything is great, like you don't break down and you're cost efficient and you're like uh, insurable and environmentally friendly, but like how do we know that you can connect to the grid? And we had no opportunity to connect in Israel to the grid because there was no legislation. So then we went to Gibraltar and connected for the first time to the grid. So kind of our first years of our journey were dedicated to proving people wrong. Like you're saying it's going to break down, I'm saying it's not and showing you, you know, you're saying it's going to be too expensive, I'm going to expose my invoices here, that's what it cost me, you can speak to the suppliers, it's not too expensive. And now really we're moving like, you know, after we operated six years, a great connect power station, I think the industry is ready to see growth and is ready to believe in wave energy again and give it like the benefit of the doubt. So right now, as I said, we're at a step that kind of the burden of proof is still on us. We proved a lot, but we need to do the last step, which is building at least a one megawatt power station, which is already considered commercial scale and prove that wave energy can become profitable. All right, Ina, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, calling all the way from Tel Aviv. Very cool to have some international podcast guests. So why don't we jump right in? I'd love to have you catch our listeners up to speed on what you're building at EcoWave Power. So EcoWave Power has developed a unique innovative technology for generation of clean electricity from ocean and sea waves. So we're doing a kind of a completely different concept for harnessed wave energy that, than what has been done before. And most of the wave energy companies in the past did kind of offshore wave energy in the middle of the ocean. And we do kind of a simpler, easier, more cost-efficient uh, technology where we connect to existing man-made structures such as piers, breakwaters, jetties, and other types of marine structures and turning them into a source of clean electricity. Excellent. Yeah. And before we dive into a little bit more about the technology itself, I'm just curious for a bit more of your backstory too. How did you get started in not just the renewable energy space, but specifically working with waves in the ocean? So that's actually a, a story that goes long back to my past. Uh, I live in Israel, <laughs> but I wasn't born here. I was born uh, in Ukraine in uh, 1986. And two weeks after I was born, the Chernobyl nuclear reactor exploded, which was the largest in history in disaster. Wow. And uh, I was one of the babies who got hurt from the negative effects of the explosion. I actually had a respiratory arrest, a clinical death. Mm. And uh, luckily, my mother, who's a nurse, came to my crib on time and gave me a mouth-to-mouth uh, resuscitation, which saved my life. So I got a second chance in life. And, like, wow. <laughs> I don't remember it. I was a baby. But, in, you know, in all the family gatherings and in all the family meetings, like, everybody would go like, wow, it's so unique. You got a second chance in life. And I grew up with the feeling like, oh, I should really make something good with it. You know, a second chance in life. That's super cool. And uh, when I was four years old, my family immigrated from Ukraine to Israel. 
at a small town uh, in the north of Israel called Akko. Mm. And uh, growing up, you don't really understand how can you make an impact, like being from such a small town in Ukraine to a small town in Israel. Like you, you don't hear words like technology or startups growing up. So I, when I grew up, I chose to study political science in uh, Haifa University, the university in the north of Israel, with the hope of becoming this great politician that will make peace in the Middle East or, you know, whatever innocent thought I had that I can change the world with. And when I actually finished my studies, there was no lineup of politicians waiting to hire like a young lady with a major in uh, political science. <laughs> and so I went to work in... Arizona. Unfortunate. Yeah. They should, by the way. Young ladies do very well in politics. We've seen in the world. And so I went to work as an English Hebrew translator in a renewable energy company. And there I kind of discovered the whole like magical world of renewable energies, like wind, solar, and wave. And whereas wind and, and solar were fully commercialized, Wave energy was kind of like new and exciting, like everybody wanted it. According to the World Energy Council, it can produce twice the amount of electricity that the world produces today, which is like insane amount. But nobody was really succeeding. No matter how much money and effort was put into wave energy, no company was able to make it happen. So, you know, I was 24, naive and innocent, like I said before. <laughs> so I said, okay, I don't have the money. I don't have the contacts. I don't have the technical background. I can make it happen. Mm. So I started researching in databases <laughs> and like any type of information I could find, like where did the other wave energy companies fail? Like what happened there? And I found out kind of the reason and thought of my own ideas and concepts of wave energy. But again, as I said, I didn't have the money even to, you know, forget building a power station, even to register a patent. So I kind of put the idea aside as unrealistic. Mm. And then one day I went to a social event and a guy came that looked a little bit hippie and sat next to me. And he goes <laughs> like, What's your passion in English, in Israel, where we don't speak English? <laughs> we speak Hebrew between each other. And uh, I told him wave energy. And it turned out that this guy is a serial entrepreneur. His name is David Lab, And uh, he did a number of very big and successful exits in the past. And a lot of his funds that he got from these exits, he invested in real estate. And one of the real estate that he invested in was a surf camp in Panama. So he was sitting there in Panama in a completely different side of the world, looking at the power of the waves during the renovation of this hotel or surfing camp. And thinking like there must be something better that you can do with the power of the waves other than, you know, marine sport. Mm. And also he thought about his own ideas and concepts and so on. So when he asked me, what's your passion? And I said, wave energy. And it's not something that you hear very commonly back in 2011. It was like match made in business. Yeah. He ended up investing <laughs> the first $1 million. And that was the beginning of wave power. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> that's a fantastic story. It spans Ukraine, Israel, Panama, a bunch of different continents. I'm curious, in kind of in the middle of that, you mentioned you did a lot of research on wave energy and where other companies have kind of failed in the past. Because I think it's interesting that, you know, as early as one or even two decades ago in your story, folks were thinking about wave energy, right? But even today, we still don't see it as a particularly highly commercialized form of energy. So where have folks gone wrong in the past when trying to make this a really abundant energy source? So I think that the main mistake was that the first kind of companies that were trying to develop wave energy went too far, too fast. And uh, I'll give an example. Like mm. If you're looking at another successful renewable energy industry, like the wind industry, you'll see that it took them 100 years to move from onshore wind energy to offshore wind energy. Like 100 years of, of building wind turbines only on land getting stronger technical expertise, getting stronger financial backing. And only then the first wind turbine was built off the coastline of Denmark. Mm -hmm. 
with wave energy, kind of the market went the other way around. They went first to the offshore, trying to harness the power of the waves far into the ocean, four or five kilometers into the ocean. It's much more expensive. It's much more complicated. You need ships, you need divers, you need underwater mooring, you need cables. Plus, the forces that are acting on an offshore wave energy technology are much higher offshore and even higher than the ones that are acting on a wind turbine because the wind turbine, the bottom of the turbine, is static, it's not moving. A wave energy device is dynamic and it gets dynamic loads of the waves, which is very difficult to forecast and to handle. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they went to the offshore without having any, like, real, you know, conditions, previous knowledge, and without like really looking at the prices or looking at anything around it, like the wind industry did very correctly, I think was the big mistake of wave energy. And then it kind of creates a reputation for the field, like, wow, it's scary, it's too expensive, it breaks down, it's not insurable, it's not environmentally friendly because offshore also connected to the ocean floor. It's impossible to connect it to the grid because again, when you're offshore, you need like a long underwater grid connection cable. So it created a lot of fear, the fact that they started where it's so complicated. Yeah, I like that analogy to kind of how it, people try to do it in reverse to the way that wind energy progressed. And yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely imagine that if you're building four to five kilometers offshore, like even the end result of trying to connect, like once you have generated electricity, trying to connect that back to the grid, that seems like a really significant challenge. So it sounds like, you know, you focused on reversing that approach. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, how your technology works closer to shore and, and the innovations behind that. So we basically attach tailor-made unique floaters to existed man-made structures such as piers, breakwaters, jetties, and other types of structures. Our floaters are going up and down with the movement of the waves. Mm. They're pushing a hydro cylinder, which transmits biodegradable fluid into land-located accumulators. A pressure in the accumulators is being built. Uh, the higher the waves, the higher the pressure, which is used to turn the hydro motor, turning the generator, and sending clean electricity to the grid via an inverter. And the whole technology is controlled by a smart automation system, which enables an, a smooth uh, kind of transfer of the energy to the grid. And what is good in our technology is the fact that when the waves are too high for the system to handle, our floaters automatically rise above the water level and they stay in the upward position until the storm passes. And when the storm passes, they go back into the water and commence operation. Very similar again to wind turbines, that the blades actually lock down when the wind is too strong. And is this a similar, is it a similar mechanism for generating the electricity that the other kind of companies in the past would have tried to use further offshore or is it fundamentally different in some ways than what they were doing? So the company currently holds 17 patents and patents pending, 11 are approved, 6 are pending for different unique features, both in terms of the floater size, both for the automation, both for the conversion unit. But there is an agreement in the wave energy sector, with that said, that the best way to kind of harness stably the power of the waves is through hydraulic principles. So many of the failed, let's call it concepts, offshore concepts that have been developed did use hydraulics. The main difference, like except some operational differences, was in the fact that they would take and put all the hydraulic equipment and the electrical expensive equipment inside the floater that is located offshore. So for example, there was a company called Alamis, a Scottish company that did tests in Portugal. And uh, they built a very small power station, a demonstration for very expensive price of like $150 million in development costs. And it broke down after three days of the coastline of Portugal where they were testing <laughs> total loss to the system because all your expensive parts are in your floor. Oh, man. So in our case, like all the expensive parts are on land, just like a regular power station. The only thing in the water are the floaters which belong in the water. 
Got it. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate how that's a, a huge difference. Anytime I hear someone discussing a technology that they want to use that is 100% in the ocean, I get a little bit nervous just because <laughs> the power of the ocean and its ability to destroy anything that you put in it is a pretty unparalleled. To be honest, like right now, it's very difficult to do offshore wave energy. I do believe that offshore wave energy has a place in the world's renewable energy mix and will develop at a certain point, exactly like mm. offshore wind developed. But again, it took 100 years of an easier, cheaper approach made investors that made technical people believe in it. Yeah, I think that's a good roadmap to scaling is if you can make the kind of nearshore or onshore version of the technology work and you already have, you know, projects that are generating electricity and people can understand and see a clear path to making money from it, then it begins to be a little bit easier to develop those technologies that would be needed to work further offshore too. So tell us a little bit about some of the places where, you know, your technology is already deployed and working because I know it's not just a lab concept. So our first uh, grid-connected power station was built in 2016 in Gibraltar with co-funding from the European Regional Development Fund, the EU, uh, operated and was grid-connected for a period of six years. And right now we're opening our second grid-connected power station, which is in Jaffa Port in Israel. We're doing it in collaboration and co-investment from Israel's energy ministry, which recognized our technology as pioneering technology and co-investment from EDF Renewables IL, which is a subsidiary of Electricité de France, the French national electrical company. We're very excited about that. It's about to open in one or two months. And it's the first time in the history of Israel where wave energy will officially connect to the electrical grid of the country, you know, the national grid. So we're super, super excited. We also signed an agreement in January this year with the Port of Los Angeles for putting a demonstration there. It's with Alta C at the Port of Los Angeles. And we already sent the conversion unit and we'll be looking to produce the floaters there in order to create local workplaces and then also launch it uh, as soon as possible. And for us, like that's a big step into like kind of our objective of penetrating the U.S. market, which is a very important market for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the United States Energy Information Administration, Wave Energy can produce 66% of all the United States energy needs. And that's definitely like a big number. And if President Biden followers are serious about you know going to carbon neutrality by the year 2050 wave energy definitely has to be in the picture and we're also working with assemblyman robert karabinchak from new jersey who submitted the actual uh, legislation initiative to include wave energy as part of governor's murphy energy master plan for new jersey and is planning to provide us the steel pier in atlantic city Mm. in order to also start with the pilot and then to grow wave energy to commercial scale in uh, the state of new jersey we signed a concession agreement of 20 megawatt in Portugal, in the city of Porto. I already got the licensing for the first one megawatt and looking forward to start the construction of this power station, which will become our first commercial scale power station. So we're moving quite fast, especially like in comparison to how, you know, offshore was trying to kind of, you know, commercialize, but had a lot of the problems of breaking down or being too expensive and so on. Like we're not facing those problems because... Again, we're onshore, nearshore, which is much easier, which is simpler, which is more cost efficient. And now kind of we prove that wave energy is possible. We prove that we didn't break down for six years of grid connection in Gibraltar and that we weren't too expensive and that we are 100% environmentally friendly and that we're safely connected to the grid. Right. And now kind of we're at the final stop, let's call it, or the final uh, kind of objective of our journey which is proving that wave energy can also produce significant energy amounts and that you can do only with a large-scale power station and that it can become profitable. And once we reach that point, 
that's it. We're like in the same game as solar and wind. When energy <laughs> will start its commercial rollout? And I think, you know, for folks listening, it's something that I think we've both hinted at, but, you know, it took a long time for both solar and wind to get to the point where, you know, now everyone talks about it like, oh, this is the cheapest form of energy, but that took many decades of development. So I think you're right. You know, it's worth, even if people don't think about wave energy prominently today, it's certainly worth considering where it could be in 5, 10, 20 years more with more investment and more development. And I was curious, a couple different things came up for me during that that I thought were interesting. For one, I'd be curious, you know, when you noted that wave energy could produce, you know, two-thirds of the US US's electricity needs, is that for both onshore and offshore, or is that even just onshore? So the study was made for both offshore and onshore. So it takes into account all wave energy potentially in the country, because you usually don't make the split. But there are studies that are showing that although the potential offshore, same like with wind, is much higher offshore, that's the reason why most companies went offshore. Mm-hmm. The actual exploitable energy in the onshore and nearshore is practically the same. Because if you're taking into account that you're using hydraulic principle for conversion of the energy, you understand that the hydro cylinder, which is kind of the part that is absorbing the energy for the floater, has a certain movement. So let's say the movement range is five meters. So any wave height that is beyond five meters will be working on breaking the equipment rather than producing electricity because like the hydro cylinder just cannot move past that point. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference between available and exploitable energy. And that's something that is important to take into account. Yeah, and that ties in perfectly to another question that I was going to ask. You mentioned Port of Los Angeles. That's particularly exciting. I spend a decent amount of time in LA myself, so I'm excited to see it once it goes live. But what are the types of perfect like sites for the technology that you have currently developed? Does it really depend on the dynamics of kind of the way that waves break in a specific point, or is it more flexible than that? So basically, uh, we start operation in waves of 50 centimeters and higher, half a meter and higher, which is not very high waves. So any sites that have continuous waves of 50 centimeters and higher, you know, the bigger, the better, up to a certain extent. A site that has a breakwater, because that's the infrastructure that we connect to, and that's kind of what enables us to save a lot of costs and not to have an environmental impact and so on. Mm. And like one more thing that is not really like kind of technology related or like, you know, environment related is really a site that maybe has a policy for wave energy because unfortunately we get a lot of demand, not the demand is unfortunate, but you know, the next uh, part is <laughs> like we get a lot of demands from ports, from coastal cities, from coastal countries that call us and say, okay, come here, we have this five kilometers or three kilometers breakwater, come build like a big 20, 50 megawatts power station. Mm. And we say, yeah, you know, we love to do that. Like, what are the next steps? <laughs> like, which licenses should we submit? What is the feeding tariff to connect to the grid? And they go like, we don't know. And then they start legislating or thinking about it. <laughs> so building a small power station can take us as little as six months and getting the legislation in place 24 months. Mm. So right now, the technology readiness level and the yeah. legislation and policymaking are not in the same place because of all the past kind of failures of offshore wave energy where, you know, governments felt like it's not there yet. It doesn't need legislation because no developer was actually asking to build commercial scale installation. They were all just testing. And for testing, you don't need like yeah. tariff and legislation so much. So kind of a site has easy path for legislation and licensing, Good price per kilowatt hour can help, of course, for the ROI, for the investors, return on investment, mm-hmm. waves of 50 centimeters and up, and the breakwater. Yeah, that's a really good point. That was something that I was going to ask about, too, is kind of like things like regulation and permitting. And I imagine that varies 
as you said, a lot from site to site, and especially in a place like the US that tends to be particularly difficult. Like we even still see a lot of solar and wind energy projects for which there's a lot of precedent, not necessarily making it from the point of proposal to actually connecting to the grid and getting developed. So I can imagine that when you're something that's fundamentally a lot newer than that, it it can be really difficult. Definitely, like uh, the policy making, the regulation framework, the licensing is very new for wave energy. I wouldn't say it's necessarily very, very difficult for our type of technologies because like, let's say when we work with the municipality of Tel Aviv, Jaffa, mm. like it took time because so many different departments were involved and it had a lot of bureaucratic issues. But like, it wasn't a longer time period than it takes solar or wind projects today to get licensing, which is a good point, actually, that we're like a new type of uh, technology, but it takes us the same, you know, kind of time that it takes them. The reason is the fact that, again, as opposed to offshore wave energy, which is a bit difficult to license for because of the environmental impact and because of, you know, the underwater grid connection cables, like Mm. if you're putting something in the middle of the water, you also need to mark it with a lot of like marker buoys around it and so on. In our case, remember that we connect to a man-made structure that already disrupted the ecological balance and that is not prime real estate and is not used for anything other than breaking of the waves. And usually the structure is either owned by a port or by the city, or by the government. So kind of, you know who's the owner of the structure. It's privately or publicly owned structure. And uh, like it doesn't have any damage to the environment. So it doesn't really need very detailed studies to enable kind of the licensing and implementation of a project. Really, the only showstoppers is just that most governments didn't think to include wave energy in their policies, in their plans for the future. Mm. Like, for example, New Jersey is fixing it just now, you know. They put a target for how many megawatts of wind do they want to install? How many megawatts of solar do they want to install? And they completely ignored wave. And wave resource is the biggest resource in New Jersey. According to a scientist who spoke in the committee that I was invited to speak to for the legislation initiative to, you know, start happening. So, like, how do you ignore your biggest resource? But on the other hand, when no wave energy company approaches you and says, okay, we want to build, I can understand the legislator point of view saying, like, okay, why legislate? Right. And I mean, they're not always as up to date as, you know, someone that's actually in the energy industry with what's going on. They kind of, I'm sure they keep up and read, but if there's no companies, you know, stateside or in New Jersey developing wave energy, then it's not necessarily going to be on their radar. Another thing that I wanted to ask about is, you know, for the sites where you've already been operating for a while, for in Gibraltar, for instance, what has been the capacity factor of those systems? Because, you know, folks talk about solar and wind a lot as, you know, being pretty intermittent and only generating electricity somewhere between 25 to 50% of the time. How has that played out at the kind of deployments that are already live for you? So according to all the studies, wave energy is the least intermittent source of electricity that exists out of all renewable energy sources, just from the fact that like, let's say solar is an amazing Mm. renewable energy source and it's fully commercialized, especially I'm speaking from Tel Aviv, Israel, like sun is one of the best resources in Israel that we have. (laughs) <laughs> but you have the night, you have cloud coverage, you have pollution, and you're not producing any electricity. As opposed to that wave energy in suitable locations can produce even 24-7 around the clock. So that's a big advantage. Got it. And um, talking about energy production, our pilot sites like Gibraltar, let's say, again, our goal wasn't necessarily producing the most energy there or uh, kind of having the highest capacity factor. The goal was kind of proving the concerns that the industry had or that the people had about wave energy wrong. 
showing we can build cheaper, that it, it doesn't have to break down, and showing also that we can kind of our measurement of efficiency was if we know that there's X available kilowatt hours in the site, how much out of that can our equipment actually harness? Mm-hmm. So when we started the first year of measurements in 2017, we were able to harness 30% of the energy that we expected to harness. That's not amazing, obviously. And then we made a lot of improvements in terms of operation and maintenance of the station, less downtime, improvement of the automation system that enabled to produce more electricity. And then in the last year of measurements, we went as high as 70%, like the whole year average was 70% of the electricity we forecasted, which is a big improvement. We also saw that we have significant improvement in the OPEX. OPEX is the operational cost. Uh, usual OPEX, the prices for you know renewable energy and even not renewable energy is between 1% to 8% of the cost of the system. When we started, we were at 18% of the cost of the system. That's very high. because It was our first grid-connected power station, so we didn't really know how to maintain the power station ourselves. Mm, right. We had to you know, pay subcontractors, which would come, take away the, let's say, if there's a problem in the seal of the hydro cylinder, take away the cylinder, bring it to their manufacturing, a facility then bring it back and in the last year operating the power station our OPEX went as low as 3.2% of the cost of the overall power station which is well in line with solar and wind and other renewable energy sources so really I think that the broader experience gave us a lot of you know advantages and a lot of uh, kind of learning yeah I think folks myself included, probably forget sometimes that there's more than just generating the energy in the equation. If you're also operating a power station, that's a decent amount of uh, operational work and not something that people necessarily take into account when it's like, hey, we have this device that can generate energy. There's more to it to actually get it into homes and onto the grid. And it's also a good lead into, I'm curious to ask a little bit more about the business side, because we got the backstory on, you know, how you got your initial funding. And now we see where you are today, which is, you know, grid connected, producing electricity. What does kind of like the journey in the middle of those two points look like? So how did you go from initial funding to developing the technology to getting those first deployments? So it's kind of two separate routes, like the funding is a, you know, is a different story and the technological development is kind of, you know, happening in the same time, but a bit uh, also a different journey. But like, if, if I'll treat the funding first, then um, the first investment was really from David, $1 million. Then we did two private uh, fundraising rounds and where we raised funds privately in order to continue developing the technology to build the Gibraltar power station that was done with private funding, plus the participation of the European Union, as I said. Then our company became, in 2019, the first Israeli company to ever list on the European NASDAQ, or NASDAQ Stockholm. So we raised there uh, mm. more substantial funding and were able to move forward even farther and sign our first like commercial deals, like the 20 megawatts uh, in Porto, in Portugal. In July 2021, two years after uh, we listed on NASDAQ Stockholm, we uplisted the company to NASDAQ US and we're currently traded on NASDAQ US under the stock symbol WAVE. So that was kind of our, let's call it, financial journey from the first $1 million to being publicly traded on NASDAQ in the U.S. In terms of technological journey... Excellent. <laughs> thank you. In terms of the technological journey, so we started on paper, conceptualizing. We did a competition between 300 engineers in Ukraine, actually, in the beginning of our journey with David. Mm. Because the cost of engineering there is less, but the level of engineering is very high. Mm. We didn't know if our idea is even working. So, you know, we wanted to save costs. So we made a competition between 300 engineers and chose a team of five that could actually, like, 
give us the best ideas of how to turn our concepts and ideas into like engineering reality in terms of blueprints and sketches and so on. Mm -hmm. Then we went in and we did wave pool testing in the Hydromechanical Institute in Kiev, which is like a governmental, you know, water-related kind of institute. Uh, we tested their different floater shapes to see how the shape of the floater is actually impacting the energy absorption and generation of the specific floater. Uh, when we received approval for the workability of technology from the institute, we did our first real conditions testing in Crimean Peninsula, which was back there, a part of Ukraine, because we opened the company in 2011. Mm, yeah, a lot has changed, unfortunately. And then like, we received our first approval from Jaffa Port in Israel, to you know, move our equipment from Crimean Peninsula to actually you know our country of incorporation, which is Israel. So we moved it and we operated for six years a 10 kilowatt off-grid power station because there was no legislation or regulation to connect wave energy to the grid. In the same time, in 2016, we signed a PPA, a power purchase agreement with the government of Gibraltar, and we installed our first 100 kilowatt grid-connected power station, pilot station there. Then we signed an agreement, a joint venture agreement with EDF Renewable Zael, the subsidiary of the French National Electrical Company, which enabled us, together with the recognition from the chief scientist, the Spanish technology, to receive the funding and technological support also to build our power station here in Jaffa Port in Israel. Like instead of the small one that was there, like to build the bigger one that is actually grid connected. Right. And the technology, like throughout the journey, the technology keeps improving and improving. We keep changing, we keep upgrading. Because nowadays, even if you look at your mobile phone, right, every year you get a new version. So definitely in such an innovative sector like the wave energy, you have a lot to innovate. You have a lot where you can improve efficiency, where you can uh, decrease O&M, operation and maintenance costs. So we're doing it all the time. So on as you are kind of successfully innovating and improving the system itself and then also expanding to a lot of different locations across the world, what's the state of the business like today and kind of is, you know, are you making a transition towards profitability, as you mentioned earlier, out of this kind of R&D phase? Not that the R&D will ever stop. Or is there still kind of further ways to go before you hit that inflection point? So we're very, very close to our commercial rollout phase. As I previously said, basically, look, when we started the company in 2011 and even a few years after, like nobody really believed in wave energy because there was so many high profile failures. <laughs> like, First, everybody, everybody said, like, it's too expensive, you know? So then we built, yeah. you know, the off-grid power station in Jaffa Port, and this showed that it's actually not even close to the prices of the offshore attempts that have been made. Then they said, okay, it's not expensive, but it will break down, you will see. So we operated it for six years, and it didn't break down. <laughs> but then they said, yes, it's great, but, uh, you know, what about the environmental impact? And then we showed, like, we made an environmental study that showed that because you're connected to amendment structure, there's really no environmental <laughs> impact. And then came the question, everything is great, like you don't break down and you're cost efficient and you're like uh, insurable and environmentally friendly, but like how do we know that you can connect to the grid? And we had no opportunity to connect in Israel to the grid because there was no legislation. So then we went to Gibraltar and connected for the first time to the grid. So kind of our first years of our journey were dedicated to proving people wrong, like you're saying it's going to break down, I'm saying it's not and showing you, you know, you're saying it's going to be too expensive, I'm going to expose my invoices here, that's what it cost me, you can speak to the suppliers, it's not too expensive. And now really we're moving like, you know, after we operated six years, a great connect power station, I think the industry is ready to see 
growth and is ready to believe in wave energy again and give it like the benefit of the doubt. So right now, as I said, we're at a step that kind of the burden of proof is still on us. We proved a lot, but we need to do the last step, which is building at least a one megawatt power station, which is already considered commercial scale and prove that wave energy can become profitable. Because the only way to prove that it can be profitable is, of course, produce large scale, like large energy amounts. Right. So once we reach that point, from my point of view, it's just like, you know, copy pasting the same concept to any breakwater or port in the world that wants us. Yeah, I like that kind of analogy about continuously having to prove people wrong. I think that happens in a lot of kind of clean tech areas where, you know, sometimes it's the ghosts of the past, whether it's some big company that went bankrupt 10 years ago, for instance. I think the similar things have happened and think about like electric vehicle charging, battery swapping comes to mind where 10 years ago, there were all these Silicon Valley funded battery swapping companies and they went bust. And now people still kind of don't believe in that technology. So yeah, sometimes it's kind of really more about overcoming that burden of proof because people have those prior misconceptions. But I'm excited to see you all succeed in 2023, hopefully. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're looking forward as well. And we will, of course, invite you to our LA power station. Yeah, that'd be great to see in person for sure. I think even, you know, seeing it visually would be, I know that we're on a podcast, so it's hard to kind of visually illustrate things for folks. But, you know, I'm sure that there's videos of your technology online that people can watch after listening, because I think that's a compelling way to see how the wave energy actually, how you actually harness the energy. I guess one final question for me, and I think, you know, we already addressed a lot of this, like overcoming people's misconceptions about the opportunity is a big piece of this regulation and permitting and getting the sites to deploy your energy is a big piece of this. But what are any other kind of constraints or key challenges that come to mind when you think about the work that you need to do in 2023? Is it, you know, supply chain issues for getting parts or hiring the right people? What are some other constraints on your business that that keep you up at night? Supply chain was a bit of a headache, especially during COVID, because a lot of the factories have stopped production. So, for example, we even saw it in other industries, the solar power plants almost doubled in the price of equipment just because, you know, parts were missing. Mm. I'm even getting emails from wind companies to my mailbox saying, like, just like, you know, a broad email that is saying, like, if you have this and these parts, we would love to buy it, which shows that there's like probably still a lot of shortage in components. Again, luckily for our... I think it's power. definitely true for wind energy too, yeah. So luckily, again, for our power stations, we could have got the components. A lot of the components that we use are off the shelf. So all the electrical parts are Siemens. All the hydraulic parts are Bosch and Parker. We can use like uh, sometimes, you know, a different generator, a different hydro motor if we need them or if we see that something is very difficult to get. But yes, supply chain is an issue for everybody after COVID. Mm. Hiring is also an issue for a company that is not a huge size because... As you grow, you need more and more people. So you need to dedicate more and more time to the kind of hiring and recruitment process and to get the most you know, qualified the engineers or business development people and so on. So that's definitely a challenge, I think, for any company that is growing from a super small company to a larger scale company. And one more thing that I think that is kind of even bigger problem and might be like a showstopper for wave energy is the fact that right now, because the wave energy is not considered a commercialized renewable energy source, there is no debt financing available for wave energy projects. Mm. So as opposed to solar and wind, which get 18 to 90% of their funding from banks, yeah. basically wave energy can only get funding like either from equity, mm. which is the most expensive type of financing that you can get, or from grants. And grants are not always available when you're ready to build your project. So 
wave energy or we kind of go in such a way that we build a project, we start to go raise funds. We build another project, we start to go raise funds. So it doesn't really enable a commercial rollout because a commercial rollout and profitability is when you're holding multiple yielding assets, multiple yielding power stations on your balance sheet and you're selling electricity to the grid. And it's not really possible without that financing. Yeah. But, you know, being an entrepreneur, I guess I have to be optimistic. <laughs> and if I'm looking at solar and wind, I'm seeing that in the beginning of their journey, they also couldn't get that financing. And then, like, you know, when the technologies became more mature, they started getting like as low as 50%. And then slowly, slowly, it grew to 80 or 90% of the financing. Mm. So I believe wave energy will have the same journey. Yeah, that sounds like a sig- I didn't realize that. I'm glad that came up because that is a significant gap if you can't secure debt financing. And I imagine perhaps something similar is true where in the US right now, you know, there was a lot of legislation and spending on renewable energy passed this year, but perhaps most of that, you know, goes to solar and wind to established sources of kind of utility scale energy generation versus things like, you know, what you're developing with wave energy. And then it becomes harder if there aren't, you know, established incentives via something like the Inflation Reduction Act, then it becomes harder to get things like tax equity from banks too. I can see how that's a gap. Exactly. And so definitely we would like to see more policies, more legal frameworks, that financing that is being given to wave energy. But it's not something that discourages us because again, like, you know, when wind started, solar was way ahead of wind and everybody said, oh, it's too expensive and it's breaking down. If you go on YouTube, you see a lot of wind turbines flying out of their spot, you know, <laughs> because they weren't properly designed or there was like stronger wind than anticipated. And they couldn't get that financing in the beginning. And for them, there was no policies in the beginning. But kind of when you do something good, it's contagious. So, for example, when we did the project in Gibraltar, mm. we got orders for projects in Portugal, Morocco and Spain. This is all the neighboring countries to Gibraltar. So they liked it and they wanted more of the same. So if it happened there, it will happen in the U.S. They will see that New Jersey state is legislating. They will see that the port of L.A. is implementing and other states will want more of the same. Thing. And that is what makes me kind of more you know, positive about it. Well, you've convinced me that I definitely would like to see more exploration about the potential of getting this in a bunch of coastal cities, too. I guess one more question zooming out. I think you've done a really nice job of advocating for, you know, wave energy, which is something that is underappreciated perhaps from many folks in the renewable energy sector are there other technologies that you know even if you're not personally developing them that you see similarly as something that has a lot of potential but isn't being invested in or developed at the rate that you know perhaps it should be other things that you're excited about there's many interesting kind of uh, technology companies that uh, i think have very significant potential it does not necessarily have to be energy generation companies. So, for example, companies that are developing uh, accumulators, electric accumulators for renewable energy stations, these kind of companies can change the world. Mm. Because right now, the accumulation possibilities for intermittent renewable energy sources are very limited, right? Because solar doesn't produce 100% of the time. But if you could put accumulator in place, it could produce 100% of the time, right? Because the energy that is not used will be accumulated and then will be kind of uh, sent out at the time of need. And right now, accumulators are both like, if it's for large-scale power station, take a lot of space and also are very, very expensive still. So like, for example, the first company that would really build a smaller size accumulator for high-capacity power station and at lower cost will be extremely successful and will make a revolution in the renewable energy sphere. 
So that's something that I like, uh, like this technology that I like to see. And there's so many other interesting technologies. Like for example, there's a technology that produces energy from algae or from tires. Mm. Or from, uh, in Israel, they developed the technology that when cars go on a road, just, you know, the touching of the car on the surface of the road produces <laughs> clean electricity. So that's super cool in, in my view. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot, a lot of things uh, that can be done to save energy, to produce energy, to improve energy production. Mm. I like to see more of Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's a, a good time to be optimistic with all the innovation that's happening. And as you said, it's not all, I mean, kind of the supply side of where energy is, comes from and is produced is super important, but that's not the only area of innovation. Energy storage, kind of moving energy through time is super important, as is, you know, things that are efficiency and demand side oriented with just getting more efficient with how we use energy once it's produced. All right. It's been wonderful having you on, Ina. Where should folks keep up with you if they want to kind of see more about the technology, watch videos of it, or keep apprised of any updates from the company? So you can visit our website, which is ecowavepower.com. You can register to our newsletter for the website. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, under Ecowave Power. We're pretty, our technology is pretty known because uh, we're quite advanced in the wave energy sphere. So even just <laughs> Googling the company, we'll see a lot of, you know, articles, press, uh, interviews, and like our power stations actually in action. And, you know, if somebody's in one of the countries where we're actually operating the power stations, stop by and look, you know, personally at how it works, because really most people had the chance to visit <laughs> a wind turbine or a solar field, you know, or at least see it from remote. But visiting a wave energy power station is something that not a lot of people have experienced and it's super cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see it in LA soon and you know, maybe I'll make it out to southern Spain and Gibraltar before then. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon. Yeah.